welcome to more of a comment than a question. Um, I'm Rachel Hartman, and with me today is my um, little helper, <laughs> Paul Connor. <laughs> I, I was trying to think of like the most uh, de- demeaning way to say something like that, but I don't know. <laughs> I drew a blank. I like it. Um, happy to be here. Happy to help. Uh, thank, thanks for uh, thanks for allowing me to join the podcast. Yeah, uh, you're welcome, and uh, thanks for being here. So, yeah, um, yeah. I guess before we jump into things, uh, how has your week been? Um, a bit weird and stressful, but not too bad. It's getting cold. It's getting cold here in New York. Who knew? Um, how, <laughs> yeah, that how, happens. How, how's, how are things in... Uh, um, they're good. We actually have a snow day today at UNC. Awesome. Um, it did not snow. Well, mm. <laughs> I live in Durham, so I'm like 20 minutes away. So there's no snow on the ground here. Yeah. In Chapel Hill, I think there's like an eighth of an inch. There's just like yeah. barely some dusting. But they canceled classes. and um, oh, That's nice. They yeah, can- so that has no impact on my life. But that's just kind of funny. I love snow. It's amazing. I... Like, yeah. I've so rarely seen snow in my life. And it's only snowed, like, a couple of times here. But I I just get, like, really disproportionately excited to see snow and go out and walk in, in snow and stuff like that. I'm sure it'll wear off, but it hasn't worn off. It hasn't even nearly worn off yet. Like, it's, it's like magic for somebody from Australia. <laughs> <laughs> it's like this... It's like you've just sort of transported into this fantasy realm, or I don't know. It's I get I just get weirdly excited about snow. It's really yeah. beautiful. No, I, I'm kind of the same way because, um, like, growing up in Israel, it would snow of every two or three years for like half a day, and then it was gone. Um, but yeah, and I still get really. I've been back in the U.S. since 2013, and I just like get really excited every time it snows. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, you, I think like. Yeah. It's actually made me start to think I want to end up in a place where it snows. Uh, but have you tried driving in the snow? No, not really, not yet. <laughs> it's really bad. Okay. It's really scary. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah so that, that's the only downside. But anyway, enough about that. Yeah. Um, so a lot has been going on on Twitter this past week. Yeah. And um, we have, so we have a lot to discuss Uh the first thing that we wanted to get to was um, Manny responded to a lot of what we said in our last episode. Yes, uh, Manuel a, Manuel Galvan, student yes. at um, student at UNC. I assume uh, all our uh, listeners colleague, know who Manny is. Colleague of yours. <laughs> at this, point. Hey, this could be somebody's first more of a comment. So he's he's kind of our resident left wing authoritarian, often sometime guest, often. Uh, often critic of the pod. Um, I kind of suspect he left us our first ever one out of five <laughs> review, but uh, <laughs> I have no proof about that. But uh, yeah, um, he sort of, uh, well, he, yeah, he sent us a message first on Saturday morning about his disappointment with our previous podcast and linked to a document that had, I don't know, 30. 30 dot points of things that he disliked or disagreed with. Um, and both of us, I think, just kind of looked at it <laughs> and just said, uh, 
I don't want well, I don't want to I don't want to deal with this right now. I mean, for me, I think like for me weekends are for the family and I just didn't want to spend hours, you know, back and forth like yeah. about, you know, debating all these points, so I just kind of ignored it and put it off, but then I think he got impatient and then just went uh went public just with it. Just put it on Twitter. Yeah. Well, I was I was going to respond. Um I was just like really busy. Uh, weekends are for homework for me, yeah. unfortunately. Um, yeah, so I just like had a lot of reading that I had to get done, and then I was going to like respond on the document, but we didn't have like editing access, mm-hmm. so it was read only. And then I was like, do I want to like copy paste and like write responses? And I was like considering doing that, but then the next time, oh, and also I don't have the Twitter app on my phone, so I have to like actually go check Twitter so I don't like get notifications. Um, strategic decision there. And so the next time I checked Twitter, he had just like posted it all on there. So but I thought that was good. You know, it's good to have like transparent discussions about um, critiques and uh, it's good to, you know, have lively disagreement about um, points that we brought up and just like anything in general. So I'm happy to have it out there, and yeah, and so I was happy to have that opportunity to also respond publicly mm. to a lot of what Manny said. Yeah. So should we just go through maybe the Twitter thread and and respond um, now? Yeah, okay. sure, that sounds right. good. Uh, so some of these will be things that I've kind of already said on Twitter, but I can yeah. expand on them a little bit more. Absolutely. So he wrote, um, disappointed about the latest episode of More of a Comment. Here's a quick thread on several misrepresentations I informed Rachel Hartman and Paul Connor of yesterday. No response, but now it's on Twitter, so I will go ahead and share some of my concerns here. Okay, first one. Rachel told me that she thought it was rude when she received a short email response inviting her to join the messaging committee. I pointed out that if the email she received was rude by virtue of being short, her initial email was also short and thus also rude. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah. So one, I'll just say, like, I think that is kind of like a little bit of a nitpicky um, point and not very substantive, substantive, but I will still, uh, I guess, address it. And so I think like mainly I thought that the response to my email was rude because not because of how short it was, but just because it failed to engage with what I was saying um, and failed to, like, acknowledge... Yeah, it was just, like, completely ignoring anything that I said, just saying, like, if you have anything to say, go, go, like, join a committee. Mm -hmm. Um, My email, by contrast, was short, um, but it was partially short because it was a link to a longer article that, like, really engaged in depth with this practice of sending out emails Mm -hmm. and so although yes my email was short it wasn't like the message that i was sending was uh like it wasn't like i just typed Mm -hmm. uh, a message saying don't send these emails yeah okay yeah i don't know it it is a bit nitpicky and maybe not that important uh, yeah. this particular point so let's move on anyway there's a lot to get through so next point uh, Pearl Sonosov attempts to catastrophize the situation and claim they shut down the listserv they didn't he just didn't have sending privileges in the first place most people don't it's not a forum for discussion okay so I honestly have no idea what happened with the listserv um, Manny has access to the listserv because he's on our like student government mm-hmm 
he's like a senator or whatever. I don't know how the hierarchy works there. But um, and so he needed access to the listserv to be able to like send things out mm-hmm. from his uh, leadership position. I have no idea why I had access and like people were confused about that. Um, so it is possible that just like no one has access except people who get permission for it. I somehow slipped through the cracks. I don't um, understand. But then an, another student did but also. Yeah, the other student, another student also had access. Yeah. So it might, I have no idea. Yeah. So it's, it's pretty understandable why Paul <laughs> thought it was shut down because he sees all these other students like replying all and then he goes to reply yeah. all and he can't do it. So, yeah, I mean, I still don't know. I mean, Manny's saying it wasn't shut shut down. Maybe he's he knows the administrator of the listserv. I, I don't know. He's But he's basically just saying most students don't have access, but we have three students at least who do have access, and you have access, but you're not on any of these committees. So anyway, but yeah. the main thing here is like, why characterize this as catastrophizing? Like, Paul, I don't... I mean, how do you define catastrophizing? To me, catastrophizing is if you there's a situation and you make it out to be much more like harmful or um, a much bigger negative deal than it is. But I don't think Paul did that at all. I think he just said that he tried to he he, he made an honest mistake saying he, that he tried to send a message and he couldn't. So he assumed that the listserv was shut down. He wasn't saying, and that ruined my life, and, you know, like, <laughs> and I'll never recover from that, which would be catastrophizing. I think like, yeah, like characterizing this as catastrophizing is just kind of uncharitable editorializing uh, from Manny. Well, yeah, I'm not, I don't uh, remember the exact words uh, that Paul used Um or that I used when we were talking about the listserv. I think, like, there is something to just, like, viewing it. Like, if it was shut down, then I would view it as kind of, like, silencing people and, like, restricting their ability to, like, you know, voice their opinions or whatever. And I would, I do see that as a bad thing um, in general. I think, like, there... If... This is a whole wormhole, but, like, if... Uh, listservs aren't a forum for discussion, then the original senders of the, the email about Rittenhouse shouldn't have sent it because it's a it's a, it's an like voicing an opinion basically, mm. Um, mm. and like that's a form of discussion. Mm. So um, yeah, so I think like it, it not it, I think catastrophizing is too strong, but there is. Uh, difference in sort of like my feeling about it at least in terms of whether it was shut down or if it was just like mm. by default inaccessible to everyone mm. okay. maybe anyway let's let's move on so the next one is about me um, here Paul wonders if there was an actual spike in hate crimes uh, I think he means spike in hate crimes against Asians which was what we were talking about why not look it up and check your musings if you have a podcast I haven't seen convincing data. He's quoting me there. Did you ever look it up? And then he says, yes, there was a spike in 2020 links to an NBC article about FBI data. Now, uh, a few things here. Firstly, no, I didn't look it up. If you listen to the podcast, you will hear that it was sort of a peripheral point to what I was talking about. The context in in which I brought it out was sort of arguing that uh, students from um, minority racial groups or marginalized groups do 
uh, often want to hear statements of support and solidarity with them. And I was bringing it up in the context of a couple of Asian friends who had suggested that they were upset or they said that they were upset uh, when nobody in their workplace sort of checked in with them or expressed solidarity with them when there was this supposed wave of uh, Asian hate crimes in 2021. Um, And I, yeah, then just as an aside, I said, and I haven't seen, uh, I actually haven't seen data that convinced me that there was um, an increase in hate crimes at at that time. Okay, so that's the reason we didn't kind of stop the pod and and look it up is because it was kind of a side issue. Um, at the time. Um, but also, um, I mean, prior to that, in early 2021, when when this Stop AAPI Hate thing um, was all in the news and stuff like that, so the, the spa shooting happened in early 2021. The guy in San Francisco was killed in early 2021. That attack in New York that was caught on camera where those security guards got fired, that happened in 2021. So FBI statistics on hate crime don't come out generally until the following year. So uh, in, in, in my understanding, this was sort of the idea that there was this big spike sort of happened in 2021, not in 2020. So as far as I knew, the data would not come out until 2022 to, to look at, well, was there this spike in 2021, which when everybody was saying there was a spike. I also remembered at the time, people were sort of... Um, they did have some data, but it was just from a handful of U.S. cities. It wasn't from the entire country. And that sort of made me very, uh, not very skeptical, but like at least somewhat, hmm, like, is this real? Because as I explained in the podcast, I think that um, the media can sort of uh, contribute to the impression that it is real. Anyway, so um, the data that many provided was for 2020, and it did show an increase. Uh, there was about 100 more um, hate crimes against Asian Americans in 2020 than in 2019. So the number jumped up from about 200 to about 300. Uh, so yeah, that, that is there in the data. And I, and I wasn't aware of that. I mean, that data was released like about six months after um, this, the, the, uh, all the protests about stop AAPI hate and stuff like that. So it was very much off my radar. It was off most people's radar when that, that FBI data uh, was finally released that, that sort of confirmed that there was this spike in um, any Asian hate crimes in 2020. But here's what I would say. Um, I looked up um, the statistics on violent crime um, and there was actually just a big increase in violent crime in 2020. Uh, And there was an increase in just general violent crime against Asians in 2020 because there was an increase in violent crime against all Asian groups, just in terms of absolute number. There was actually a decrease. Against all groups, you mean? Yeah, exactly. and just in general, an increase in violent crime. So uh, the increase in violent crime is much larger than the increase in hate crime. So violent crime, Asians, uh, it's like 8,500 in 2019 and 9,616 in 2020. So an increase of about um, 1,000 violent crimes, according to the FBI. But that actually, in terms of the proportion of overall violent crime, that actually is a decrease. So in 2019, Asians were victims of uh, 0.8, so about 1.6% of violent crimes, and that was 1.4% in 2020. Uh, and so those, much, those numbers are also much larger, uh, right, than the incidence of hate crimes. Um, so I do, I do still, you know, kind of have questions. Like, you, know, you know, you have this enormous sort of... Um, well, there, there was kind of this media narrative with COVID around, around um, anti-Asian sentiments, even in 2020. I do think, like... 
even just with when we're just talking about 100 extra cases, some slight changes in awareness or uh, reporting practices or like categorization practices by the authorities or the Asian community could could lead to a change um, in itself for other reasons. I mean, I don't. Yeah, like it's not it's, it's not a hill I want to die on, whether there was or whether there wasn't a spike in any Asian hate crimes. But I think like. Uh, the the key points that I want to make is yeah it was a sort of a peripheral point um, which is why we didn't sort of stop the podcast and look it up uh, prior to the podcast I didn't look it up because to me the issue was mainly about this early 2021 period and that that data is still not out yet uh, and I, I still think even with the FBI data there are at least some reasons um, there are at least some alternative explanations that you can you know like at least be open to if you take a scientific um, perspective on this thing. So, yeah, I think like, it, you know, we, uh, yeah, I, like sometimes we pause the podcast to look things up. Um, we didn't in that case because I, I just think it was it was quite a peripheral uh, point. And I, I do think when in early 2021, when everybody was talking about and very like, vociferous about there's been this massive increase in Asian hate crimes like as I said that data that Manny is pointing us to didn't come out until six months after that so I still think it's true that people were going ahead of the data at that time uh, and some level some greater level of skepticism was warranted Um, but anyway that's probably enough on that particular point yeah I think that's probably right okay enough about this okay so anyway the next point is the most important point apparently so probably (laughs) the most egregious misinformation is pearl uh paul pearl paul cernasov's recollection of this quote-unquote study i can't find anything about it online a science podcast with no fact check or citation call all right and i should just clarify manny had like little snippets of the podcast in all these pods so this is what he's referring to when he says this uh is this study anyway um Okay, so Paul, uh, just also as an aside, uh, and if you listen to the pod, you can clearly hear he says, well, before I get to the main answer I want to give, I just want to give like this quick uh, anecdote. Do you remember this study that came out and talked about it very briefly, then moved on? Okay, so it wasn't fact-checked during the podcast, this study that Paul referred to, because it was brought up as a tangent. Um, And yes, we could have asked him for the link and it escaped my mind because it wasn't an important part of the discussion. Uh, And we've now found the link and we've added it to the show notes. So um, the, in the study they found, um, let's see, they, well, it's, it's weird to call it a study. What, what it was is like um, this sort of anti- uh, anti-racism, anti-hate group basically surveyed a bunch of media articles looking for evidence or incidents of anti-Asian racism and then sort of just collated them together in this document and and produced some statistics about um, where were they occurring, like sort of what state, uh, who was responsible for them, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So they, fi- they found... Um, uh, 1,023 incidents of anti-Asian racism, including 679 incidents of anti-Asian harassment and vandalism, and 344 incidents of stigmatizing and discriminatory statements, images, policies, and proposals. Uh, so then they, in one of the tables, they show that Donald Trump was responsible for 55 of those statements, images, policies, and proposals. So 55 out of um, 344 is actually like 16%. And I think Paul stated that it was, they'd said it was 24%. And, I, and, and so, yeah, like um, he, I guess he, he didn't get the statistic 
quite right of this study. Um, and I think he said it was about hate crimes, but it's not technically all about hate crimes. It's about hate crimes, but also um, stigmatizing and discriminatory statements. But I mean, uh, you know, it does, it does exist. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I didn't think it was an important point during the podcast and I, you know, like, I think it's, it's reason, it's a reasonable exercise to like gather evidence of, uh, anti-Asian racism and, and show who's responsible for it. So I don't, I don't have massive problems with this study. Like, I don't think we learn that much from it, but that's, that's fine. I don't like, I think a lot of, a lot of things that are produced, we don't learn that much from, um, and I don't like. I don't think it's that much of an indictment of the study. How much of this they put on Donald Trump because he was a, he was the president at the time, and he uh, is very um, he is very vocal, and he, he he was he has been a source of a lot of like stigmatizing statements and and stuff like that. So yeah, um, but like I said, yeah, not fact check because it was a it was a side issue. It was a peripheral point that wasn't really. Um, that important yeah. to what we were talking about. I think it's, I think it, like, I don't know, when uh, he said, when Manny said a science podcast with no fact check or fact check or citation, I felt like um, that maybe we should have a discussion about, like, what is the podcast that we're doing here? Mm-hmm. Um, like, mm-hmm. is it a science podcast? The way I think of, like, what a science podcast is, is a podcast that is really, like, about where its main focus is about bringing you scientific facts and like analyzing them and understanding them and presenting them in a um, reasonable way, uh, which I don't think is really what we're doing here. I think we want to avoid uh, spreading misinformation and like to the extent to which we can, we want to make sure that like what we're saying is as accurate as possible and what our guests are saying if we can like if we know that they say something false right away we can like correct them or question them on that but like our episode last week wasn't about it wasn't a scientific episode um neither is the episode that we're doing right now it's us voicing our opinions talking about what's been going on um sort of like Mm. so i don't know like i think like like i don't want to completely throw off any responsibility of like being accurate and Mm. and fact-based but i also think like there are different levels of rigor that um may or may not apply to us i don't know what are your thoughts you're the actual founder of the podcast yeah well i would say that what we do is commentary uh, and what what I see my role as is to uh, talk about things and say what I think about them and explain why you know, I, I think what I think about those things. Um, and I mean that's not that's not like I guess we we t- we talk about science a lot. Um, if psychology and, counts as science, and I'm going to I will always try to defend my viewpoints or explain why I hold them, which um, is consistent with science, a scientific worldview. But I, you know, that, yeah, I I mean, it doesn't, it definitely doesn't entail fact-checking everything a guest says. Um, Yeah, so commentary, and I think it's, it's, it's fair enough to say, like, because if you're listening to a podcast and other people have actually reached out before and said, hey, you guys mentioned this, this survey, um, 
and you didn't provide a link in the show notes, where did you get that from? And so I think like we could be a bit better about providing links in the show notes because it, it seems that there are some psychopaths out there who, uh, who want them <laughs> and follow them and, and look stuff look stuff up. Um, but no, uh, yeah, I, but I also think like a lot of what's going on here is the fact that last time Manny was on the podcast, I did fact check him on one thing that he said and you remember this right so Manny was on the podcast and he was uh, talking about solutions uh, policy solutions uh, to racial inequality and he mentioned that affirmative we know he said affirmative action reduces um, the racial wealth inequality Um, and I it for me I was just interested because I had never seen that evidence I'd never heard that that sort of confidently expressed like that um and i just felt that maybe he was just sort of making that up uh, so i i did fact check him after the podcast and he said you know i haven't seen i haven't seen that evidence can you provide it and he sent a few papers but they were nothing to do with the wealth inequality or income inequality all they all they kind of showed was that affirmative action in um, university admissions reduces uh representation gaps in university admissions which is you know pretty it's kind of pretty, the definition of pretty, yeah, obvious, right? Action. And and so I went back and listened to the podcast and again, and I was like, and then I was like, no, he he actually did say that if we know affirmative action reduces uh, wealth gaps. So I said, you know, you you did say this. So like, can you find any evidence? And then he did eventually dig up um, one paper that showed evidence, you know, partially consistent with that theory, but. I, th- I think that's kind of what's going on here is from Manny's point of view, it's like, hey, well, I, you know, <laughs> you you made me go like dig up a paper and you fact check the hell out of me last time I was on the podcast. Why does Paul just get to uh, like mention this paper that at that point, I guess Manny didn't think that paper existed and you don't fact check him. This is a double standard. And I think probably it is a double standard, right? Like, so if you, if you say something that sort of uh, surprises me or... Um, that I, I am not sure is true, uh, I will fact check. I will kind of fa- want to fact check that, especially if I feel like you're just sort of making stuff up to win an argument. But I don't think Paul was, I, I, there was nothing, no reason for me to suspect that Paul was just sort of making, making stuff up. And I think, yeah, maybe he misrepresented the statistics and he said 24% instead of 16. And he said hate crimes instead of hate crimes plus stigmatizing statements. But to me, those situations are quite, are quite different. Um, in terms of the sort of uh, the misremembering or the misstatement that Manny made compared to what what Paul did, and and so, but I, I mean, like obviously, right? Like if somebody is argue is arguing with you, and they're trying to like refer to some studies that you're not sure they exist to to win that argument, like it's almost inevitable that you'll you'll fact fact check that more uh more rigorously than you might if somebody just sort of mentioned something that is sort of peripheral to an argument in an offhand way um so yeah i don't know but i do i do sort of take the point that people do sort of want these links uh if you refer to studies so it's like fine um we can do that yeah um so let's see I think we can move on to the next point. Okay. Um, okay. So, <laughs> Rachel argues that the department doesn't send messages of support for Israelis in the Israeli-Palestinian crisis, but it, because it would be upsetting to people who support Palestinians. The department doesn't take side in international conflicts. What are we talking about? Okay. So, um, 
One, I was kind of like half joking when I was saying that the reason that they don't send them is because it would be upsetting to people who support Palestinians. I think there is like a lot of truth to that in that people on the left are pretty anti-Israel. I don't think it's because they don't send it because they're worried about upsetting people. I think they don't send it because they themselves don't view it that way like they if they if there's a war going on between Israel and Gaza and like people are getting injured on both sides they see, they view it as well Israel is the side that's in power and stronger and so they're like the you know we don't really care about the casualties on their side basically but um regardless so the Manning's point is like well why would they even comment it's an international thing um but I, it's not clear to me, like, why is that distinction important? Like, okay, the thing in Waukesha, like a Rittenhouse thing was in Waukesha, Wisconsin. That's not local to uh, UNC, so why talk about it? Like, why do we, so we expand to nationwide, but like, if what we really care about is how students are feeling, and if like, there are big things that are happening around the world that would affect their feelings, then we should reach out and like make sure that they're okay. Like, if there are, I'm thinking about like what's going on in the news now. Everyone's talking about like Russia invading Ukraine. If we have Ukrainian students on campus who are, who we care about their feelings, maybe we should be sending out solidarity statements to let them know that we care about them and you know want to make sure that they're doing okay. And like, obviously, this expands like so much that it's like not feasible right like Mm -hmm. it's not feasible to uh follow what's going on everywhere around the world and make sure that you're sending out statements of solidarity to students who might like be particularly upset about it but that's kind of part of the point is like you can't why are we nitpicking like who the students are that we care about and the the students who don't matter as much and why why the arbitrary line on like national versus international yeah or, you know, or what it what is and isn't a legitimate um, source of uh, angst for for the students in the department um, that 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 justifies a comforting message. Um, yeah, like it. I thought that was a good response. Like it's it's not. I mean, Manny just sort of mentions says it like it's obvious. Like, well, obviously we wouldn't comment on international things, but it's yeah, it's not clear. It's not necessarily clear why that is if the purpose is uh, inclusiveness and solidarity and support for students. Yeah. Um, Okay. And then the next thing was there are two main sources of information about racism in the department. So what was Manny uh, responding to here? I don't remember the context. Yeah, so you mentioned that uh, the students wrote the letter uh, after the George Floyd killing um, and uh, you were expected to sort of agree that there was a lot of racism in the UNC psychology department and you mentioned on the podcast that you you hadn't really seen much evidence that there was uh, racism specifically in the UNC psychology department. Right. Okay, yeah. So then Manny responded, there are two main sources of information about racism in the department. One is the letter written and signed by nearly every student of color in the department. The other is the literature that has documented the effects of racism in academia generally. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack here. Um, 
there is the letter. Uh, so this is Manny's referring to uh, dear white people, dear white faculty member. Uh, yeah, dear white faculty letter um, where a bunch of, or uh, I guess, uh, I don't know, yeah. students of color in the department wrote a letter basically talking about how the UNC uh, social psychology department is white supremacist, and I'm characterizing it a little bit, but that's... Well, can I... This is a direct quote. We intend for this letter to find you uncomfortable, disgusted, and reflective into the ways that you have been complicit in the perpetuation of racism and white power and supremacy within our department. So I don't think you're actually caricaturing it. That that was the second sentence. It's like a d- <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, that, that's true. Um, and so this letter is basically there's you know it's basically like talking about how bad academia is in general and how bad the department is in that like it's not representative. Um, there's ninety one percent of core faculty are white or white passing. Um, and I'm actually not sure if this is okay. You know, sorry, I said social psychology. This was the whole psychology department. Mm. That was a mistake on my part. So yeah, um, the whole in the whole psychology department, ninety-one percent are white or white passing, and only sixty percent of Americans are non-Hispanic white. Um, and so they need to like listen to brown, black and brown voices and um, educate themselves and, like, act. And basically, there's a call to action um, for faculty to do better. And I think similar letters have gone out in departments around the nation, probably. Yeah, I don't... I mean, Maybe not as bad as this one. This one's pretty intense. I didn't see anything this intense sort of within, within the psych department at Berkeley. Um, there was just some sort of reply all emails sent around saying, yeah, we all, we all need to reflect and do better. And, you know, we can, there's things that we can look at. This It's not just the police. This is pervasive. And, but not, not this is very accusatory and, and, um, and intense. Um, I think it might be an outlier. Um, yeah. So I think, there's a few things in this letter one of them is um evidence about like lack of uh diversity in academia in general which i think we'll we'll address next um because that was kind of the second point in manny's response Mm -hmm. but then what i what i think would be most relevant here is what's the evidence of actual like racism in the department like if the claim that i was um trying to make was like I don't think that people of color lack power in our department Mm. Um, I'd want to see evidence that they do and so the kinds of things that they say about specifically our department is that it lacks diversity Um, so I'll just point out that um, having a lack of diversity does not imply racism there are many possible reasons for disparities Um, including historical and past racism, and also including other measures that aren't relevant, um, such as, I mean, like, at this level, like, if your applicant pool is mostly white, then your faculty are going to be mostly white. So maybe there is racism in what 
has caused your your applicant pool to be mostly white, but that's not a problem that you can fix by telling people to hire more black people. Um, And then basically like the section about specifically the UNC department is most most people are white and then consider how this looks to prospective and current students. I'm just going to read this little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, consider the content that occupied your everyday mental space at uh, at Davie before COVID. That was the name of our building. Did you often think about your skin color or race? Did you often think about your existence, what your existence means in spaces like Davie? Did you find yourself reminding yourself to actively mute that voice that questions your very own self-worth? Because when you look around, there's no one that looks like you. Losing academics of color... Uh, like Dr. Enrique Neble and those before him is disastrous. It robs us from so many potential black and brown students. It robs us from making any palpable dent in this department's overwhelming white majority. You, our white faculty, have multiple reasons as to why we have lost our faculty of color throughout the years, but you need to recognize that your collective whiteness, ignorance, privilege, power, idleness, complacency, and complicity explain a portion of that variance. Um, and then there's links to articles that um, I assume support some of the general like background argument about this. I looked into the articles at the time that the letter was sent, but I haven't looked at them recently. But I think there's a big leap here between saying that we know that representation in general matters to saying that there's racism at in the UNC psychology department. I think it is right to point out that like there should be maybe more representation. Like that's that's a valid argument to make. Um, but I just like I don't see the direct link between that and saying that students of color in our department like don't have power. Mm. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, um, it's... Pro- I think it's probably true that uh, students of color would prefer to go to departments where there's faculty of color. So if you don't have faculty of color, it does dissuade students of color from coming to your department. I think I've... I've yeah, seen enough sort of anecdotal evidence of that to to think that that's definitely true. Um, I wonder, like, I wonder if they would just argue that, well, you know, we're talking about uh, systemic racism here. Uh, And so, you know, even if the faculty would say, well, you know, we didn't have we didn't have really many minority candidates in the applicant pool, and that's why we don't have many applicant faculty, then that still leaves open the accusation that, well, you're just, like, perpetuating this system then that, that leads but what, to But what's this. the alternative? What are you supposed to do? Well, I mean, the Kendian, the, the, the common view now, that which I think is being advocated here for, is just, like... Uh, anti-racist discrimination right just right but just hire, but if just, hire the, them. just just 
but you can't hire people that don't exist. Like if your applicant <laughs> yeah, pool, yeah. I mean, yeah, if your yeah. applicant pool doesn't have black doesn't people have in any, it, well, then they would say, but well, why doesn't your applicant pool have any? Okay, then you well, need to, and I mean, in one of those pieces linked to uh, the the writer of the opinion piece explicitly says. Oh, so you tell me that there's inequality in the pipeline. Well, why don't you build your own pipeline? So I think like the the writers of the letter would just say, yeah, don't don't tell me about the applicant pool. You're you know you need to fix the applicant pool as well. And and this is yeah this is one thing where we just sort of talk past each other because you're sort of saying like, well, it's it's not the UNC psychology department's fault. Uh, it's not their it's not their fault that the applicant pool is what it is right um and sort of the 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 alternative view is this sort of broad sort of vague idea about systemic bias where no it kind of it kind of is your fault or if you're not um if you're not doing sort of more or everything you can but you know basically the you you are just sort of to the extent that there's differences in representation, you are guilty, basically, um, because of this is this is the sort of the Kendian view, and and if you're not doing everything in your power, or if you're not doing enough to uh, redress those uh, differences in representation, then you're complicit in the racist system, and the only way to prove that you're doing enough is to act to ha- to fix the representation itself. So. Mm-hmm. It's it's certainly true that um, there is a system that perpetuates uh, these um, underrepresentation, right? Um, but at, at the same time, like you're kind of telling people, well, build your own pipeline. You you have to fix the pipeline, and you're you're just telling that to a psychology professor. That's just sort of it's kind of like empty posturing and i think what 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 it ends up in in practice is just like very very crude um very very crude attempts to just like fix fix the underrepresentation right like do do everything we can to just um uh, implement um aggressive sort of affirmative action policies and just get our sort of diversity statistics to a point where nobody is yelling at us anymore right without addressing the actual core underlying issues um and so yeah like a letter like this where it's saying no you need to tell us the concrete steps that you're going to take um which then if you sort of follow the links and stuff like that ends up in these sort of directives to the well you have to fix the the pipeline um i don't know it's just a it becomes very like hard to know in practical like practically what what does that mean what, what like what is that what does that look like and i I, th- I often think like letters like this are sort of sort of expressing this outrage at this whole system um but they're also like weirdly focused on like one little part of the system and and kind of like making the suggestion or the implication that the people within this little part of the system are, are somehow responsible for fixing the totality of it um and the world doesn't really work like that. I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I feel like there's so much to say here. Um, but mm. so one thing is, I'll just say, like, if you apply the exact same arguments to the lack of ideological diversity in academia, then, like, 
suddenly the whole thing breaks down. Suddenly, it like the the fact that there's mis um, that there isn't enough representation isn't evidence of anything. Like there's no that's not ev- enough evidence to show that there's discrimination or that there's a, a faulty pipeline or anything like that. It's just they're not just not interested in it, right? Well, it's evidence that if you if you get educated enough, you stop being conservative. <laughs> yeah, or something like that. Um, I don't know. I, I just feel like uh, it's it's just like always irritating to think of like why, like the same logic, mm. If as soon as you apply it to a group that you don't like, mm. it just like you, it completely falls apart. Yeah. And the other, the other hole in it is like, well, Asians are overrepresented in social psychology so do we have is there some kind of systemic bias that needs to be fixed to um wait are they really overrepresented in social psychology yeah yeah um uh that at least in statistics presented at the last spsp um and so yeah like uh you know the, the the yeah is there a systemic bias that we need to root out um to uh, reduce the number of Asians in, in our field because they're overrepresented, and and this is a this is a key problem when you are just making broad inferences from underrepresentation. Um, is that yeah, like other groups are overrepresented, and you're sort of uh, if you're arguing that underrepresentation is due to some bias system, then you're by the same token arguing that overrepresentation is due to some bias system, and and so yeah that accusation that would be that we there's some kind of um conspiracy or or system favoring um favoring asians uh which you know nobody would agree with i I don't think but the simplistic arguments about representation um are kind of wrong on their face but i mean they do have they do have some like reality like it, i think it is true that um say like black people for example are underrepresented in academic fields uh very likely as a direct result of historical racism mm-hmm. yeah no i think that's probably true um and whether at the level of the department or at like lower levels but i think probably also like actually at the level of the department mm-hmm. um but yeah, so that's another point that I wanted to bring up is like, how fast do you want progress to be? Like, we can't wave a magic wand and hope and like make everything better immediately. But it, and yet things have been progressing like very rapidly in the past like 10 years. Um, and so, yeah. yeah, like, you know, the older faculty in a lot of departments are going to be mostly white. But then the new faculty coming in, the postdocs, the grad students, they're a much more diverse group. In most of my classes, white students are maybe 50% of classes, maybe even less. Mm. Um, like the students that I see around me are, it's a very diverse group and that's great. That's a good thing. But mm. like in a few years, those students will go on to get postdocs and uh, faculty positions and the problem will be fixed. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I mean, it's it seems true, but I mean, you could also say, well, letters like this are a part of the reason why that is happening. 
so this is why we need to keep um, sort of hectoring our faculty about their complicity in white supremacy. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure the next few hires at UNC will be people of color. You know, uh, and I, isn't it isn't it the case that they did just I know uh, Chris Petsko just was hired by the business school there, but I thought I also saw a, a scholar of color hired in the psychology department. Are you, are you across that? Uh, yeah, Julian Rucker is. Uh, he was hired through a, a program that you like do a postdoc and then mm. you stay on as faculty as long as like things go well basically yeah um, so he was a postdoc here in the past couple of years and i think is starting next year's faculty yeah and you know maybe this letter had something to do with that and i think yeah i i just yeah i i, I think like some of the some of the rhetoric is just a little much when you're accusing your faculty of being complicit in the perpetuation of racism and white power and supremacy within the department. I don't, I don't know. I guess my I, I think you just need to be clear about what you mean and, and when we start talking about, like, what's this statement? Um, you need to reflect on how your white... Yeah, your collective whiteness uh, explains a proportion <laughs> of variance it's just it's just so vague and um doesn't doesn't ultimately really mean anything uh yeah yeah but i don't know so like then the other thing we've talked about oh, we're spending so much time on manny which ultimately is probably what he wanted but let's <laughs> but anyway the one thing that really stood out to me in his tweet was so he linked to um well he said one source of evidence is this statement which is like, you know, well, the students at NYC, at UN, NYC, UNC are all saying that there's racism in the department and that the faculty are complicit in white supremacy, which is like, okay. Um, but he also said, and there's all, this, uh, there's all this academic evidence, right? And he links to this um, Google document, uh, which is, um, yeah, he says, uh, racism in academia lit review. And there's, you know, there's a lot in this document that he linked to a lot of different papers and it's just not possible for me as you know a busy postdoc with a kid uh one-year-old kid that i have to look after to to read through all these papers right um but i did just sort of click on a few of them and and read through a few of them and when you do that i don't know like it just becomes really clear very fast that they're not really a good basis of evidence for concluding that there's racism within the UNC psychology department. Okay, so let's let's just talk about a few of them, right? Uh, so one, uh, the first one in there, the Annie E. Casey Foundation, Children in Title I Schools by Race and Ethnicity. Okay, so the, it's basically just uh, some statistics that showed that um, black kids are overrepresented in Title I schools. Uh, what is a Title I school? It's basically a school in which children from low-income families make up at least 40%. Uh, of enrollment so yeah this is sort of evidence that black kids uh disproportionately go to schools where more kids are poor um which you know completely unsurprising like everybody knows that in the united states there's racial wealth gap there's racial inequality um 
and black people disproportionately live in poorer neighborhoods. Okay, what does that have to do with UNC psychology? Not clear. Um, next, next paper, sent home and put off track, the antecedents, disproportionalities, and consequences of being suspended in ninth grade. So this paper uh, by Balfantz and Fox in 2014, this paper looked at suspension rates of ninth graders in Florida. Uh, and it showed that, you know, even controlling for socioeconomic factors, black kids were um, significantly more likely than white kids uh, to be um, suspended. Um, interestingly, it also showed that Asian kids were uh, significantly less likely than white kids to be suspended. Um, but, you know, the the disproportionality, I guess, uh, would be would be argued not to matter in that case. And, and you know, the the disproportionate suspension of black kids compared to white kids is evidence that, I guess, of systemic racism, but the disproportionate suspension of white kids compared to Asian kids, we're just expected to ignore. I don't think we're, we're supposed to conclude that there's pro-Asian anti-white racism. I is get- there any attempt to control for, like, actual misbehavior? Uh, like, Yeah, no, no. I mean... Um, no, I mean, how could they? Like, I think, I, well, I guess they could like look at severity of incidents and stuff like that. But anyway, because, yeah. So the study goes on to sh- show that, and it, like, it's a terrible study. It, talk, it talks about causal language. It uses um, causal language to talk about the effect of uh, being suspended on subsequent um, graduation from high school and enrollment in post-secondary education. But all it shows is a correlation, right? It just shows that, mm-hmm. yeah, kids that get suspended are less likely to finish high school, are less likely to enroll in post-secondary enrollment, which, again, you know, com- completely unsurprising. And so it's basically saying, it's trying to make the argument that, yeah, disproportionate suspension of black kids is a cause of their, you know, um, disproportionate lack of uh, graduation from high school and... Um, enrollment in post-secondary education but interestingly if you look at uh, table five in this paper it actually shows that if you hold suspensions and social class constant black kids are more likely to graduate more likely to enroll in post-secondary education and more likely to complete more semesters of post-secondary education than white kids Um, which is quite a surprising result i would have thought Uh, but again like what what does that say about racism in the department at UNC. Um, I would argue very little. Another one I just wanted to get to quickly, uh, Dura Doi and colleagues 2020, tenure and promotion outcomes at four large land-grant universities examining the role of gender, race, and academic discipline. So this study looked at um, the um, uh, sort of uh, progress to tenure of uh, scholars of different uh, race and gender. Um, And it found that, uh, it did find that in some specific uh, disciplines, business, education, health, and veterinary sciences, um, black faculty were, it looked like, it seemed like they were disproportionately disadvantaged in terms of um, uh, attaining tenure. 
but it also says in the humanities, on the other hand, the URM underrepresented minority faculty appear to be promoted faster and in higher proportions than other faculty. In the rest of the disciplines, agricultural sciences and natural resources, engineering, biological and biomedical sciences, physical and mathematical sciences, and social sciences, the cumulative incidence curves are similar for underrepresented minority and other faculty. So social science, which we're a part of, they did not find any disparity between um, underrepresented minority scholars and, I guess, majority group scholars in terms of um, uh, attaining tenure and progress through the career in academia. And so, again, like, you can't, like, you can't look at this evidence and form any kind of strong conclusion about the level of racism in the UNC psychology department. And it really struck me reading these papers just how much of a sort of unfair playing field we are on when if we try to engage with somebody like Manny in these matters, right? So, And I was just sort of thinking, just reading these studies, like imagine if you or I found a study that showed that there was no racial disparity uh, in suspensions of uh, uh, people in ninth grade in Florida. And we took this study and we put it in a, a list of studies and we pointed to this list as, look, this is evidence that there's no racism at UNC, right? Mm-hmm. And I just imagine how somebody like Manny would react digging into our data and then they, they go to our list of, of, of evidence that there's no racism at UNC and they find that what we're actually talking about is just this one study that found no evidence of, of discrimination uh, in suspensions of ninth graders in Florida. <laughs> like, just imagine, I don't, I would, if Manny's listening to this, I'd love you to reflect on how you would react if you, if you saw us use this evidence in that way. Or, like in the example of this tenure paper, if we found a paper... And we sort of had this paper in our list of evidence that there's no racism in, at UNC. And the paper actually did find a racial disparity in the social sciences where black faculty were less likely to, to get tenure, right? I, you just imagine the fun he would have with his tweet thread, like just accusing us of bad faith misrepresentation of the data or just scientific illiteracy in terms of like, look, we're pointing to this paper as evidence and it actually shows the opposite of what we're purporting to argue for. I mean, and I just think that, like, the level of, um, this level of sort of uh, misrepresentative, misrepresentation of what the studies actually show and sort of sloppy inference and, like, like treating a correlation between, like, suspension and later outcomes as, as being, like, evidence of the causal effect of suspensions, like, this level of just... I would say, like, sloppiness and bad scholarship, like, there's no costs for Manny in engaging in this level of sloppiness, right? Like, nobody is going to sort of come along and accuse him of being a, a dishonest actor or, or racist or, like, a, just a bad person and, like, being sort of biased and having this biased conclusion that he's just trying to gather all these studies even though they don't really show his conclusion. But I think if you or I... Uh, used a similar level of sloppiness like people would totally accuse us of being like dishonest actors and engaging in bad faith and stuff like that so as many has yeah and this is and I, I just think it's a really unfair playing field if the 
the quote-unquote good guys just get to like be completely sloppy make all sorts of mistakes nobody really holds it against them because you know they're on the quote-unquote right side of history but if you're a contrarian or or a skeptic you don't my my feeling is you just you can't you can't be so sloppy you can't make mistakes like that because they'll be taken as evidence of your bad faith and your dishonesty and stuff like that so that's why i'm i'm just reluctant to engage with with people like Manny these days because there's this just massively unfair playing field that you're operating on and i yeah i mean i'd love for him to just reflect on like if the shoe was on the other foot and you saw us misrepresent studies in this way or just make like really unjustified like broad conclusions based on studies that don't really support those conclusions how would you react but like this is what you're doing yeah so okay um i just wanted to maybe try to defend manny's sharing of the list for a second a little bit um i just i think that he probably compiled this list for a paper that he's working on about like uh, disparities in higher ed or something like that. Uh, I have a vague recollection of him working on a paper like that. And, um, and so a lot of the papers are probably like to use a citation in a sentence where it's like, you know, mm. you write a sort of general broad sentence of like, everyone knows that there's a pipeline of uh, this, like, disparities and like leading from kindergarten up through uh like college and then you have like citations of you know this kind of like suspensions in ninth grade or whatever so i think like it was that's partially maybe an explanation for why a lot of these studies were just like not relevant at all um but i think that doesn't one i think he probably should have uh taken the time if he was going to link to it to highlight the ones that he was saying were relevant and two even the ones that seem relevant like you said like a lot of them are showing no effect or um, sometimes reverse effects so yeah um i should say i mean some of them do find evidence like so there's a another one i looked at eaton and colleagues 2020 they did an experiment with identical CVs of gra- uh, graduates, PhD students with black names or white names, and they got professors in physics and biology departments to rate competence and hireability, and they did find a racial bias there. Um, you know, yeah. f- physics and biology, uh, it was also a relatively small sample, like N of something like 250. I also think this kind of evidence, this kind of study is treated as like evidence of nothing if, if people don't find the, the bias that they're looking for. Uh, you know, yeah. I've seen I've seen much larger, bigger efforts than this just like be put in the file drawer when they didn't find bias. Um, so yeah, I mean, we should we should like I I'm not cherry picking in the sense that like I you know I am telling you about all the ones I looked up, but like I can't like I said can't read. Yeah, we didn't 50 look up. Studies. There really are like yeah several pages of uh, links. Um, but one other thing that I just wanted to bring up while we're on this topic is another thing that's stacked against us or anyone who's trying to demonstrate that there isn't bias somewhere, because I think it, I think it is important to be able to demonstrate, like, if you've been working on DEI stuff for a few years, 
uh, and like now you want to test to see if it worked, you should be able to say like, yeah, there's no disparities. Great job. Pat yourself on the back and move on. Mm. Um, but I think part of the problem there is a statistical problem. And maybe you can help me think through this is um, when you do like null hypothesis statistic tests, significant tests, blah, that was mm. a lot. Um, then you're trying to basically disprove the null hypothesis that the two groups are equal. Mm. And so if you find that the two groups are equal, then, well, why did you find that? One reason could be that they actually are equal. Another reason could be that you have a sample size that's too small and you just weren't, uh, didn't have enough power to detect the effect. Um, or the effect size was a little, like too small, but still there and mm. meaningful. Um, and so, like all you're really able to conclude confidently, it seems like to me, like based off of my training, is you can say you rejected the null hypothesis, or you failed to reject the null hypothesis, but mm. you can't say that you are uh, supporting the null hypothesis. Yeah, that's that's generally true. Unless you do something like um, like Daniel Larkin's uh, equivalence testing, um, but yeah, you never you never confirm the null hypothesis testing with normal null hypothesis significance testing. That's true. And that's yeah. This so what is, do we do about that? Well, it's I think it's I think it's an issue. Like, and I all through my graduate career, like it became. <laughs> I became really concerned about the way that we were doing things because, you know, you have these theories and there's a lot of scholars uh, trying to run these studies to find evidence of racial bias. And when they do find the evidence, those studies are published and widely cited. And when they don't find the evidence, those studies just are ignored or go in the file drawer. Or even if they are studied, they rarely get cited. So... I think it's, yeah, like the way we do things, the game is rigged to produce a literature showing evidence, showing evidence of bias. And that doesn't prove that there's no bias. It, it, it certainly does. It certainly should make you critical and skeptical of this literature and, you know, literature reviews such as Manny's pointing to with look at all these studies showing bias. Um, because the machine of social science is kind of rigged to produce those those kinds of studies and and you know I think like yeah um, that's not to yeah that's definitely not to say there's not bias in society and that that you can't find that bias but um, yeah it is I think a real problem in how we as a field approach these questions yeah. All right, we're going to move on because that was a lot. Um, yeah, we're almost at time <laughs> just from this. That, that took a long time. I do, do we really? I, don't know. I guess we've done it now. We, can't. we, 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 have, to keep, uh, we have to keep going through Manny's tweets because otherwise um, he's going to accuse us of cherry-picking <laughs> the, the tweets. 
<laughs> because okay this that's actually related to this very next one um there were his next one is there were plenty more bad faith misrepresentations of unc the department and the people involved i mean they don't even mention my good faith reply to rachel where i try to think through the article she shared nor do they mention her more inflammatory response it's a shame so just like we're running out of time now we didn't have time to like bring up all of the emails that were sent um but i did i'm not going to read them now um but i did send uh put screenshots of them in on twitter in my response to manny and so anyone who's interested can go read them and judge for yourself whether manny's response was in good faith and whether my response to him was in fact inflammatory i reject both of those claims Okay, and uh, okay, but there's a little bit more. Okay, so he says, it's also fascinating. You read slash hear accounts all the time about how some woke people are being unfair and ridiculous on some college campuses. In this case, I was there firsthand, saw every email, went to the meeting, spoke with Rachel on Zoom for three hours after the emails. At every turn, Rachel and Cernosov presented the most uncharitable and self-servingly incomplete rehashing of the story, literally watching the anti-woke oppression narrative sausage get made. So... Yeah, I felt like that was probably the most, like, um, personal attack, maybe, of, like, all of these, where I mm. felt like I was just being, um, yeah, is like, a little... Well, there's a... Like, he really th- seems to have thought that we deliberately didn't mention your second email because it's... Because there's something wrong with it. Maybe we should just read that out <laughs> now. I just read it? Yeah, because, like, we really didn't avoid it on purpose and and i mean manny is saying that that was your inflammatory one and that was the one that upset most people but i really don't see it maybe let's just just read it now um all right uh do you have do you want to read uh you be manny and i'll be me all right all right i don't i don't have it up though where here I'll, i'll share my screen all right wait can you oh yes you can Okay, so this is from Manny. Um, no, I won't try to do his accent. Since Rachel has started a conversation, <laughs> since Rachel has started a conversation on this topic with all the grad students, hi everyone. I have a couple of reactions. I, for one, appreciate the faculty members sharing their views on this topic. They're doing so is a fundamental component of academic free speech and is, by my reading, non-coercive and in no way signals that they are quote-unquote university leaders who are quote-unquote speaking for their entire communities nor do i detect a sense that they are telling us quote what everyone else thinks or quote or what anyone quote must do overall i understand friedersdorf's point in theory but struggle to see how his critique applies here given that the faculty members are two specific faculty not university leaders who are speaking for an entire institution which is his point Generally, I see this opinion piece in The Atlantic as proposing a few unverified claims, like is there any evidence that administrators issuing statements prevents profs or students from discussing the events? Question mark. None that is cited. In our specific context, is there any evidence that having an hour of action organized by two specific faculty, quote, harming everyone's ability to inquire and learn from one another? Not that I'm aware. 
Furthermore, what is the solution? Question mark. Uh, should everyone just be unable to make statements of solidarity in the university setting? Question mark. Wouldn't that be a silencing of free speech in itself? Do any potential harms of such solidarity statements outweigh potential benefits? Interesting ideas, but it seems Friedersdorf has jumped in front of the evidence by admonishing this practice and advising against it before we have any evidence about the effects. Happy to hear anyone else's thoughts as well, since we're going full on reply all to this HOA invite. Hour right. of action, uh, that stands for. Yes, hour of action. Um, I'm just going to jump in and read my response. Thanks for your response, Manny. I appreciate you taking the time to respond to the opinion piece I shared. I deeply believe in academic free speech, but that doesn't mean I can't voice an opinion about what are appropriate and inappropriate ways to practice one's freedom. And while the faculty members are not university leaders, they are leaders in the department and sent their letter as a semi-official capacity uh, as leaders of a committee. Personally, I find it inappropriate, especially since it has no bearing on the science we are here to do. Consider if we had some faculty members who sent out an email saying how happy they were about the verdict and saying, if you would like to gather in solidarity and to celebrate this news, join us. I'm sure this would have caused an uproar. I am here to learn how to be a researcher, and I don't think people's personal political beliefs belong in this setting. While you may appreciate it, Manny, others do not. I don't speak only for myself, but also for others who have reached out to me, thanking me for speaking up. Perhaps we should think about why they don't feel comfortable doing so themselves. Instead of creating division, it would be better, in my opinion, to refrain from making statements like this, particularly when the subject matter is highly controversial, at least in the rest of the country, if not in the ivory tower. Um, and then in a later part of the email, I addressed the faculty member who told me to uh, go to the committee if I wanted to say anything. Um, so I'll just read that now, just in case uh, refraining from reading it would be biasing this conversation in any way. Um, so I said to the faculty member, I understand that there's a committee, but I reject the proposition that the only people who should be allowed to voice their opinions are those who are in the committee. This may not be the best forum for this discussion, but if you feel it is appropriate to send a highly political message to us grad students, then I feel it should be appropriate for us to respond to said message. Um, and so that was my inflammatory response to Manny's good faith uh, <laughs> email. What's what do you think is inflammatory about it? Um, so apparently, it was very rude to say that to say about a faculty member that something that they did was inappropriate. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, which like compare that to the dear white yeah, faculty like email telling white power <laughs> and supremacy, accusing them of being uh, I think, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean. Hmm. I don't think it's inflammatory. I think it was pretty opportunistic to sort of jump on the fact that we just by chance happened not to read this message as like accusing us of like bad faith mi misrepresentation or cherry picking or covering up things. I mean, it, but I do want to say so Manny mentioned the three-hour conversation we had on Zoom, and it was like a three-hour conversation. I was extremely frustrated during that conversation because over and over again, I made the claim, Manny made the claim, there's no evidence that uh, these kinds of statements have a chilling effect on students. And over and over again, I was like, 
I'm the evidence. I'm right here. I'm talking to you. Can you hear me? I'm telling you this kind of thing makes me feel like I can't speak up, like I can't voice my opinion about like normal things that go on in the department, about like during talks, whatever. And it's not just me. I have evidence from other people reaching out to me and saying, thank you for speaking up. We're afraid to talk about anything that is like in at all controversial. And like, saying like yeah statements like these make us feel that way because they're perpetuating a narrative and so that sort of like just complete disregard for my experiences while also you know obviously celebrating the lived experiences of anyone else in any other kind of context um like a minority person uh it's just like yeah so that that's what that three-hour conversation was like. Mm. But wouldn't he say, "Well, if I'm ex- if you're expecting me to accept your lived experience on faith, don't I also ha- then have to like accept the lived experience on faith of of the minority students in the department telling me that that it's a hotbed of white supremacy and white power?" I mean, I think that. I would actually accept, like, I think that would be good evidence if um, if the black students in the department were saying, like, this specific email that you sent made me feel marginalized because you did X, Y, Z. That mm. would be great. I would love to see that. But there's no, the, the Dear White Faculty letter doesn't have anything like that. It has these broad statements of there's not enough white people, there's too many white people here, not enough people of color, and therefore I feel bad. Um, which, yeah, I mean, like, I guess that's that's something, but, like, there's not, again, like, there's not, that's sort of, like, there's not much people can do about that other than, like, very slowly as people come through the pipeline mm. not discriminate against them or even discriminate for them but mm. Mm. anyway oh boy we just, um, we okay. just did a whole we just did a whole podcast about i know but one, okay one there's only there's <laughs> our last podcast <laughs> there's three more tweets i'm just gonna read them real quick we'll respond to all of them and then we'll be done with this forever this is our um, last podcast ever <laughs> i don't <laughs> think so like, i'm not even no. gonna advertise it let's what? just we'll just put it up send it to manny i don't like i don't want to waste everybody else's time with it. anyway let's let's finish, I think people, let's finish it I think, finish okay, what we started fine. Okay. Come this far. I want to point out that Rachel has seen literally no official consequences for anything. No one really thinks she deserves any. Her gripe is just that the department won't let her grandstand in the listserv and want her instead to engage with the committee that made the message. I spoke with dozens of people um, of the 100 to 150 on that listserv. All of them dozens. said her first. So 24, at least 24 people he's claiming to have spoken to. Yeah. Uh, apparently, uh, it's a lot of people. It's, it's a lot of people. Permit me to doubt. <laughs> Permit me to. to I'm skeptical about dozens. Anyway, yeah. All of them said her first email with the quote wasn't good, but it wasn't terrible. The second one that she didn't mention on the pod, that's the one that I just read, is when everyone agrees she was very rude. If you have a science podcast, I would think you would strive to get the facts right, ensure you aren't misrepresenting things, verifying the claims of your guests, providing important context, more of a comment than a question, didn't do that, can't disrupt a good narrative, huh? Everyone agrees you were very rude? 
everyone? Uh, well, every one of the dozens of people that get a fact check. Oh, uh, yeah, the, 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 the minimum 24 people. <laughs> okay. Um, also, I'm sorry, yeah, I don't know yeah, if I've yeah. said this already, but I do feel like this is a microaggression uh, towards me as someone who grew up in Israel because our people are known to be rude. That's just... Uh, <laughs> It's 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 not rude. It's it's being direct. It's being uh, open and honest, and it comes off as rude to uh, people who grew up in the more uh, polite areas of the world. So but do you, um, do you endorse this stereotype of Israelis? Then is we oh, are you talking about stereotype accuracy? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's definitely true. Um, Larry but, David. Larry David's certainly yeah. an outlier in terms of just. Um, lack of agreeableness and willingness to just openly confront well at least in the show <laughs> I don't yeah. know, i've never met him personally yeah i don't know i don't i don't have much much more to say about this um i just like like i said i have a new year's resolution not to argue with people online um i will you know if we get if we get criticized you know i guess we'll respond to it in the pod hopefully we won't spend an entire podcast in the future <laughs> responding to stuff but i don't know do you have do you have much more to say i i don't know I, I just think there was so much interesting stuff to talk about this week and we we've just spent well, we can i think we can do a lightning round yeah I guess. how much time do you have i mean i i have time um all right um so it's been a, like the, just a bunch of stuff this week. So um, the on the SPSP uh, discussion forum or listserv, or I don't even know. I don't have access to any of it. So, um, but uh, it was shared by a mutual friend of ours with us when it it just started. So um, a uh, white researcher suggested or proposed uh, that there should be a group of uh, majority group scholars who study um, the oppression of sort of minority marginalized groups um, and so the purpose of this group I don't know should we read maybe the original email oh, I, I feel like I'm not gonna <laughs> yeah we can we can read it just real quick yeah uh, I can read it we are exploring the idea of creating an affinity group for majority group psychology researchers who study prejudice discrimination and equity this group would be designed for psychology researchers who study issues of prejudice discrimination and equity and who belong to dominant majority privileged identities for example white researchers who study racism cishet researchers who study LGBTQ plus stigma able-bodied researchers who study ableism this idea originated from an SPSB Freeform Friday in November 2021. We're now looking at expanding it. The, the intent is to explore questions such as, number one, what are the privileges we experience that help us conduct research on equity issues without the same barriers that researchers from marginalized groups might face? Number two, where are we at risk for doing harm to the communities we seek to uplift despite our good intentions? How can we mitigate these risks? Number three, what concrete steps can we take to evaluate the voice, to elevate the voices of colleagues, researchers, and research participants from marginalized groups? And then there's just a form to fill out if you're interested in joining. So I guess that would be like me. I mean, I, I do research on social class stereotyping and bias, racial Have you stereotyping and bias. Have you put your name into the form? No, no. Um, because I think this group would be like a nightmare to be part of. But I, um, 
<laughs> no, I think like so people were outraged, right? Um, and the responses were very, very negative, and and there was a lot. I, I think the responses were a lot more respectful on the listserv than sort of on Twitter. Like on Twitter, I I just saw a lot of sort of ridiculing and and laughing at this person like what an what an idiot like obviously this person or anybody who signs up to this list knows nothing about diversity equity and inclusion or oppression of marginalized groups um but i mean the responses on the list were a bit more uh diplomatic but just maybe list what were the main objections that people had like what why did people argue that this was a very bad idea it was creating a network of privileged people. It was uh, excluding minorities, uh, in, you know, who have always been excluded, and exclusion is a bad thing. It perpetuates issues of power. Um, it, yeah, uh, people basically thought that they like that minorities, the people who are the targets of these studies would have uh, important op- opinions and um, things to add to this kind of group. And so excluding them, like, how how are you supposed to know how you're harming, uh, like, minorities if you're not asking them, you know, that kind of uh, argument? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was more or less the tenor of what I saw on Twitter, um, which is just, like, how could you possibly have a group but exclude have a group talking about um oppression of marginalized people but exclude people from those groups from from your affinity group um yeah i i don't know i i think (laughs) like what what do you actually think about the idea and then about the the criticisms of the idea um what do i think about the idea I think that it's uh, it's kind of dumb. <laughs> um, I think that the kinds of people who would want to join this kind of group are already very well aware of their privilege, uh, maybe more aware of it than they need to be. They're like hyper aware, um, and that it really all it it seems like most of what it would be is just people uh, virtue signaling to each other just how much how aware they are of uh, how problematic it is that they're white um mm. and yeah i don't think people uh white people need to apologize for caring about racism and for studying race and i don't think that it should be like uh an exercise i don't think they should be wasting their time doing this like exercise of reflection about how much power they have mm. uh they should just like do mm. the science that they're there to do and mm. Mm. yeah mm. i think hmm. it's interesting right like you i mean i don't know i guess like i the group i don't know what would have happened in this group honestly like maybe like i i mean i'm sure they would have read work by minority scholars like i definitely don't think they would have explicitly said well let's just focus on ideas by white scholars so like i i think it's wrong to say that they were going to ignore the voices of marginalized people i also just think like this idea of like you have to always elevate the voices of marginalized people is 
it's kind of weird because marginalized people don't always agree, right? Like you, then the question becomes, well, which marginalized people? Because yeah. I'm, I'm, they I'm sure they're not elevating the voices of John McWhorter or yeah, Razib Khan <laughs> or like uh, <laughs> yeah, Coleman Hughes. They're not, you know. It's like so. In that case, if you don't if you don't want to include the voices of all marginalized people and you just want to include the voices of marginalized people who have a particular perspective on these things, then it's it's really n- not about including marginalized people. It's about including a particular perspective. It's more about pol- politics yeah. than, than skin color or anything like that. Yeah, I also just want to say, like, the whole thing about... I think it is important to know, like, how other people think. Like, if you're a white researcher... Um, it's important to like uh, studying race like you should know what black people think about the topic that you're studying for example but it is also important to have diverse views and like perspectives on on things and like that's how creativity and like progress is made is by like having not everyone think the same and so if you're like it's okay for white people to approach the question from the perspective of a white person they don't have to adopt the perspective of a black person Mm. um Mm. and like i think in a lot of other areas like i don't think if you know just taking like the israeli-palestinian conflict because i like bringing in international examples um i think that it makes sense for there to be israelis and palestinians studying it but also just like Americans or Europeans, like people who are kind of removed from it, who are able to like have a different take. Mm. Uh, mm. Yeah, having like a mix of, of views is good. So anyway. I wanted to talk about one other thing in terms of this too, because like the almost universal reaction among the social psychology community to this suggestion that this this lady brought up, which came from last SPSP or something was like oh my god you idiot how could you possibly think this is a good idea right they're like this is just um self-evidently absurd ridiculous how could anybody uh consider this even for a moment and like that annoyed me a little bit that that just like response because this is this is a real like thing that people in anti-racist organizations are recommending people to do like if you followed this um sort of anti-racism training stuff at all you know that it's actually very common in this world to put people into racial affinity groups and to suggest that there's some work quote unquote for us to do together but there's also some work for white people quote unquote to do on their own uh so like i was just checking some websites uh racialequitytools.org they say to advance racial equity there is work for white people and people of color to do separately and together caucuses Mm -hmm. provide spaces for people to work within their own racial ethnic groups for white people a caucus provides time and space to work explicitly and intentionally on understanding white culture and white privilege and to increase one's critical analysis around these concepts there's also been an, an enormous amount of opinion pieces and from um, black people post George Floyd saying things like, okay, here's one, please don't ask your black friends to teach you about racism. Just sort of talking about how black people are exhausted. It's not their responsibility to teach white people about racism. It, and this is sort of entitlement on the part of white people 
to sort of ask minority members to be sort of teaching them about these things. They need to do the work themselves and learn about these things themselves. This is a really common sentiment that's out there. And I just don't like how everybody in the social psych community just decided to completely ignore that and mock this lady as if she had sort of come up with this idea out of nowhere. And I kind of think if her message had said, hey, I'm really interested, I'm a white person and I'm really interested in learning more about racial anti-racism and and research on oppression i'm looking for some minority scholars who can help me (laughs) learn more about these issues what do you think the response would have been i am pretty sure that the response would have been how dare you uh just expect how how entitled of you to just expect the time and effort and emotional labors of minorities of color just to come and educate you about racism so i just think like I just think like the like there are no rules. It, it, it's like it, it it's like whatever in the I mo- think yeah, no, I, I have it figured out. Here's what here here's exactly what you should say. So you should so here's what Andrea should have said. She should have said that she wants to create a discussion group to talk about how majority people with majority identities studying racism, all their privilege, blah blah blah. Um, the group is open to everyone. So, like, not... I think her, her first mistake was, like, specifically excluding uh, mm-hmm. marginalized... I mean, she didn't say, like, if if you're not white, you're not welcome, but she basically said that. Like, she said mm-hmm. it's for white people mm-hmm. um, or people in the majority, whatever. And so opening it to everyone and then also you have to obviously compensate people for their time if you're going to be asking them to educate you and so then uh yeah she'd have to offer some sort of compensation for the underrepresented people um and then who knows what happens if there's a let's say a black able-bodied person who's studying disability do they are they the majority or the minority i don't that, know <laughs> that's that's when you get to just like say words like intersectionality and yeah pr- pretend you've said something <laughs> profound uh no i just look i don't want to i definitely don't want to defend this lady because i like i agree like i think it's a it's a dumb idea and uh, like i mean who like who knows? They might have got together. They might have done something good. Some good might have come out of it. I don't know. Um, but yeah, for them. But for yeah, the, the response that she got, I think, was yeah, it was way over the top. It was a lot of just like, it was bullying, basically. That's what it seemed like to me. Maybe that's uh, me um, falling into the concept creep that's been <laughs> happening lately. Like maybe it's not actually bullying, but it just seemed like everyone was like they were just yeah it was like entertaining and it was funny and like let's all pile on and like make fun of this poor woman that's what that was the like a lot of the the twitter responses were almost like this is this is funny like but then the expectation in the group is that she has to apologize for the harm that she's caused of course and i i just don't i don't know that she she did any harm like any actual harm like she suggested an idea that you had objections to um and some of those objections may be legitimate i think like 
there's a bigger discussion to be had. Like if if we as a, in the social psych community are so certain that white affinity groups are a terrible idea and should never be implemented, why have I never heard a social psychologist criticize all these uh, anti-racism training uh, organizations that are implementing this? You know, so mm-hmm. it, like, and and you know, if we have good scientific r- reasons for why there should be no white anti-racism affinity groups. I mean, I saw one person sort of say, um, so there's this group showing up for racial justice, S-U-R-J, Surge. Um, and they sort of said like on Twitter, they said something like, well, this is, it's very reminiscent of Surge, which is often criticized as being just this sort of uh, circle jerk that where white people get together and pat themselves on the back and virtue signal and never do anything. But I went to the Surge website and they have a whole page about like stuff that they've done. Right. Mm-hmm. And, a, and a lot of it's very sort of grassroots political campaigning for um, DAs, campaigning for local candidates in local elections that are sort of pushing anti-racist policies and stuff like that. So, no, I mean, I don't I don't think it's a fair criticism of these people that they don't they don't do anything. I mean, I might personally disagree with their choices of like their preferred DAs or, or whatever. But like these are people that are uh, getting together and at least in some instances that are listed on the, the search website are, are doing things um, to, to yeah. try to push for racial equity. And I like, I don't know, like the, 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 they, what do they, they get for their trouble? They just get mockery and yeah. uh, like, you know, humiliation. It just seems so yeah. like ineffective. Like if you're trying to build a movement, if you're trying to implement change, why are you being mean to people who are basically on your side and like trying to to do things too um yeah like you know know. yeah oh because it gets likes and it yeah and it and the and the it gives you status uh and i think like um you know the being a minority confers this expertise right like you you're the expert you know like no no white person can ever know more about oppression than you because you yourself are a minority right so like Mm -hmm. it's a very that's a very easy lever to pull to like give yourself status and put yourself above any sort of white person competing for status in this academic system where we're all we're all kind of competing for status and to show that we understand these things better than other people and stuff like that. So like, I think like it makes sense if you're a minority in this field and you have this easy go-to of like, oh, well, I obviously know more than you about these things because I myself am a minority. Yeah. You would, you would push that button as, as often as possible. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I like another message was kind of funny that like, because she was in her original message, she talked about like, we want to get together and talk about how we can elevate the voices of uh, marginalized people. And somebody replied and just said that like, I, actually that's really patronizing for you to suggest that like, I need you to elevate my voice. And I, I don't know. I mean, that, that <laughs> like person was, that- they were only speaking for themselves, but I, it just, I know like, it just feels like this, weird maze of like yeah. because you of do course, see people in like everywhere saying we need to elevate the voices of black yeah. people and like you know, i think ex- there's almost an exact line in that dear white professor's 
um, that dear white professor's uh, letter about how those yeah. faculty need to elevate the voices of and then so but then a white person says yeah i i need to elevate and then somebody's like what <laughs> that's patronizing i don't need you to elevate and then it, i don't know it just it just feels like this uh, shell game um that you can never kind of um it's very very hard uh to say the right thing that is gonna um not be criticizable on some ground i don't know yeah but yeah, um, then so that was... there was there was also the uh, short little tangential uh, fiasco about this is someone said something about like how inclusive we all need to be and like if you can't handle that you're a sissy that wasn't the exact words they edited the their post since then so I, I don't have the original quote but um, then everyone got really mad about that because it's like using a homophobic slur and like talked about how ironic it was that they're trying to talk about inclusion while they're being homophobic. Um, yeah, it's just like <laughs> the whole thing was, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and they apologized for using the, the Everyone apologized, sissy. yeah. I, yeah, I guess I, I wasn't aware that sissy was a homophobic slur uh i looked it up and like it it was or like like that was part of it its genesis so like yeah they're they're right um probably probably shouldn't shouldn't use that word i just think like this stuff starts to border the on the absurd sometimes just in terms of the language policing and and the like searching for offense um searching for offense in every statement and everybody correcting everybody else's language. And I don't know. I just honestly, Rachel, it makes me just think like, why on earth would I want to be in this field? Like, what am I doing here? Like, why is, has this become my career goal to surround (laughs) surround myself with these people for my entire career? Like, I don't know. I, I honestly, I'm pretty sure I'm reaching a point where I just think I'm going to have I'm yeah, I'm going to have to leave this field. Like this I do not want I don't want my life to be controlled by people like this. Yeah. And it, well, and it will be if I stay in social psychology because all the gatekeepers think and behave like this. Or not not all but like yeah. a, like a lot and enough. Um Yeah. I think this just, is uh where we can plug the new Society for Open Inquiry in Behavioral Science. Um, which is the, what it sounds like, basically, and founded by a lot of the sort of leaders in the field. Uh, Steven Pinker, G- uh, Lee Jessam, Corey Clark, I don't know, Roy Bountmeister. I think uh, I'm, a, a, lot of I'm people, a founding member. You're a founding member, too, yeah. But you yeah. don't get a picture. You're just on the <laughs> list. Um, so, I mean, people are pushing back and, like, trying to at least create a little enclave within the general, like, environment where you're able to speak with people who have similar values and who are willing to have open discourse and, like, value that. And maybe that's enough. Um, I don't know. I doubt it. I mean, because... I just think like like the problem of 
the vast overrepresentation of people in the field who have a you know, very specific political view, I think is getting worse and worse. And I think people are selecting into and out of the field at ever increasing rates based on ideology. Um, I think it's, it's getting harder and harder to get a job unless you um, can sort of show that your politics, um, your politics align with the most sort of radical progressive views. Like there's, you know, selection on diversity statements. There's a lot of positions that are like specifically tailored to people who, you know, you have to be studying systemic, um, systemic oppression, which basically means you have to kind of, I mean, like they're not hiring people whose work is, is disproving (laughs) the existence of systemic oppression, right? Like it's so, yeah, like I, I don't, know if it's going to get better i think like the older type people who are like running those organizations are going to retire and then probably not going to be replaced by a younger cohort who sort of are are willing to sort of um uh create a more um tolerant environment open to heterodox views and so forth i i don't yeah. know i could i could be wrong but like i i mean even just a few months ago i was still pretty sure that i was gonna uh continue on in academia and uh, like i'm not now um yeah and i mean i'm also not sure if i'll continue in academia i think for a little while i was uh thinking that it's kind of like like if i think that there's a problem of viewpoint diversity and i have diverse viewpoints then maybe i'm sort of like morally obligated to like do my part and stay in academia because like what would happen if it really was that like no one was pushing back on anything and like you know maybe that's my very tiny role in like in this culture is to just be the annoying gadfly um uh, but but then i realized social science social psychology in particular has like no impact on the world so who cares if academia becomes uh just like a complete bubble that Mm. is like so distanced from reality and from what the like average american uh thinks and like so what so they'll just like talk in circles about implicit bias and racism and sexism and like all these bad things and just and we'll be out there being happy and making money so yeah right well i don't know if i'll be happy but uh i could probably make, <laughs> I could probably make money yeah like we can just they'll sit around talking about how a correlation between school suspensions and graduation from college means that the school suspensions yeah. caused the lack of graduation from college and you know the rest of society will ignore them and kind of ridicule them and and then yeah um it'll all be fine and I won't have to look at psych Twitter anymore. (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, you don't have to look at psych Twitter. You could just like not. I know. I know. I know. Um, It's, it's true. And this week was particularly bad on psych Twitter. I mean, there was this whole other thing we could talk about where Steven Pinker did a tweet where he's sort of talking about how like, (laughs) people call things eugenics that aren't eugenics 
Yeah, he was uh, linking to an article about that. Uh, I don't remember the author of the article. Freddie DeBoer said, perhaps not everything is eugenics. So basically, Mm -hmm. Pink is making an argument that this word is misused. It's, It's applied to a lot of things that aren't actually eugenics. Psychologist retweets him and says, hmm, maybe it's not, maybe, uh, quote, um, eugenics isn't so bad after all, isn't the best take. Hmm. <laughs> and just like, like that. And it, and it, like, it got a lot of likes, you know? And at least, I mean, there were a couple of people in the comments at least saying, that's not actually what it said. In the, in the article, it actually says, no, eugenics is bad. It's making the argument that not everything that's called eugenics is eugenics. But this just like completely obvious misrepresentation of what Pinker was saying which is then like widely endorsed by like people that I follow. So I have to see it because like the, my, my people I follow liked it. And it's just like, and like, what are we doing here? <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Anyway, um, on that very, very pessimistic note, we should, uh, we should wrap this up. It's, it's going to be a long part. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's only slightly longer than usual. Um, Oh, one last thing. Okay, this is, I swear, the last one. Is uh, the Wharton School tweet. Uh, have you seen that by uh, Nina Strominger, I think? I oh, about remembering that? business students thinking Americans earn way more than they own? Yeah. Mm, I saw that. Um, so that like went viral about how, yeah, everyone was like, dunking on business students at Wharton who are so divorced from reality and have no idea what's going on because, like, how dare they think that the average or median uh, household makes a uh, six-figure salary. And there was one in particular, like, uh, one of the students in the survey said that they think the average is 800,000. And then, like, uh, Chelsea Shane, who was from my lab, like tweeted about it it was like obviously this is a typo right like they just meant 80,000 like like how there's one student out of like a whole classroom who had a typo and now everyone is like piling on about how like crazy that is like what how hard is it to look at something and just be like yeah that doesn't make sense there's an easy simple explanation for it that has nothing to do with like ideology and and narratives about wealth and whatever Mm. So if you if you remove that outlier, does it make them? The no, main I think it's still the case like, that like a quarter of students thought that it was a six figure salary. Which like right. if you think about it, like six figure salary is like a hundred thousand a year, right? Mm-hmm. And if you have two like middle class parents who are working in like decent jobs, it will be a six figure salary. It's just like. Yeah, the, that's and if that's all that you're around, that makes sense that that's what you think that it is. Um, that's off by like a factor of two, so you know, like the median is like around fifty thousand, I think. But like, that's not like so far off. I don't know. It, it mm. like, mm. and especially if you live in a area with a high cost of living, like a mm. six figure salary doesn't go as far as it would in an area with a much lower cost of living so it's like i don't know i just think like Hmm. yes they were wrong but like also they should they be like like think if you're a student in this class and like you answer to six that it's like a hundred thousand and now you see that like like i don't know how many people it was like thousands of people on twitter are like talking about what an idiot you are that (laughs) i 
feel like that's just like not good pedagogy like you shouldn't that's not something they should be doing oh so the person that like, shared the, it were they uh, were they teaching it what were i they think they were team? or maybe, maybe not i think they were Hmm. Um, I think it was like a survey. I should probably have looked more into this if I was going to talk about it. I don't know. But I, I kind of like the my students are idiots genre of tweets. I think we're, t- <laughs> we're, t- we're, too, precious, we're too precious about not, uh, not criticizing no, students. Okay, no, but the, the, the tweet, yeah. So Nino said, I asked Wharton students what they thought the average American worker makes per year, yeah. and 25% of them thought it was over six figures. One of them mm. thought it was 800 thousand uh, yeah mm. uh, really not sure what to make of this the real number is 45,000 people that got 213,000 likes mm. um, and mm. people in the comments corrected her about like what the actual figure is it's a little bit mm. higher than 45,000 but still anyway mm. I don't know I I don't think that it says what people think that it says about Wharton students and I just like think that people should just stop like mocking other people for having uh false beliefs about the world hmm. i don't know especially if they're I, other students i don't know i actually kind of like research into the accuracy of people's beliefs because um, i think that like like you said so, social psychology doesn't contribute much to the world one thing that social psychology or social science can do broadly is to um, provide people with accurate data about the world and increase people's accuracy about stuff like what is the what is the mean income of Americans, right? Um, uh, yeah, how how much less likely is a black applicant to get a job callback than a white applicant? Like, I actually, yeah. Smriti once told me something that she thought like part of our role was to almost be like investigative journalists, right? Do rigorous work and provide people with information, accurate information about things that they care about. Um, And that still sort of makes sense to me as something that we can do that's achievable for us. Like we do have the skills and ability to do that kind of thing. Maybe we don't have great abilities to like construct complex brilliant theories about humanity like complex generalizable theories that make great predictions about people but just sort of being like journalists saying stuff like hey look people um, or business students tend to overestimate uh, their average income you know that's something we can do and I do think like it's good for people to have accurate beliefs about the world like I, I you know I think it'd be good if Wharton students had a better understanding of the living situations of the median American I also think it would be good if the average liberal had a better understanding of the realities of policing say mm-hmm. in America and stuff like that so yeah um, or if people just thought a little bit maybe just a little bit about how fucking rich all Americans are compared to people in the third world countries or developing countries. Like, because this is all, you know, I think like it's all perspective. It's all valuable. Like, and I don't know. So I do, yeah. I maybe don't hate that tweet as much as you, but I do do take your point that it's not as egregious as 
it maybe doesn't deserve 200,000 retweets, but uh, I think it was Nina Streminger who tweeted Yeah, like, Nina Streminger. She's actually really funny. She's, like, I think, one of the funniest academics, She's, and I recommend everybody follow her. Oh, and before we go, I highly recommend everybody watch Afterlife, the Ricky Gervais. Oh, yeah, I watched Netflix that show. on Sunday. Um, I, like, you know, completed most things that I wanted to do for the week, so I just, like, took half a day and I just watched the full thing. Oh, wow. I just, have... like, was crying for hours. <laughs> oh that last episode, I was honestly, like, no, I don't remember any show where I was, like, crying and then laughing and then crying and then laughing and, and just on this amazing roller coaster of emotion. And, and it just, by the end of it, I was just staring, like, staring at the screen, just thinking, like, I've never, never seen anything like this. Like, I don't, like, Ricky Gervais, he's really good. Like, and yeah. I kind of thought... I kind of thought, you know, he did The Office and The Office was brilliant. And I never watched that Derek show that he did. Uh, oh, it's and I, so I, good. I also oh, really? recommend that. Yeah. I did watch Extras and I didn't think Extras was like amazing. Like I thought it was kind of funny, but I kind of just thought, oh, you know, he's he's a rich celebrity now and his best work is probably behind him. But holy shit, like <laughs> everybody watch Afterlife. And I didn't even think season one or season two were like, I thought they were good, but but wow, like just the way season three the way they wrapped it up i i don't know it's just i've never really seen a show that was so simultaneously sad and funny yeah i don't know i thought it was like funny at times but i was mostly sad (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) yeah but definitely uh worth watching and yeah all right all right we're done i think we're done and um, also, also <laughs> Jordan Peterson quit Academia and put out a big statement against uh, diversity and equity. And also Razib Khan wrote a piece and people removed their names from it because of stuff that he'd said like 20 years ago. So there you have it. We cel- <laughs> That's how Academia <laughs> celebrated Martin Luther King's <laughs> birthday, just by melting down about five or six different things. Um, yeah. But this was, I don't know, this was a terrible podcast, and I apologize. Very self-referential, very nitpicky. But, um, yeah, I'd say this one is for psycho fans only, as Tenacious D. (laughs) Tenacious D called their, their, like, bonus DVD uh, back when they were a thing. Um, But, yeah, if anybody's made it till now, I don't understand you um Um, but yeah thanks for listening and if you ever want to be the focus of an entire episode (laughs) uh you should engage with us on twitter and uh critique our takes and we'll um be sure to address them hashtag accountability culture (laughs) love it Uh, Um, all right all right yeah it was nice talking to you paul it was nice talking to you it went on a little too long, but, uh, <laughs> but it was fun. All right. I'll see you yeah. soon. Yep. All right. Bye. Bye.